You are now listening to Me and the Market Goliath podcast. Welcome to another episode of Me and the Market Goliath podcast. Today, we're so lucky to have Simon Erickson from Seven Investing to fill us on disruptive technologies and developing trends in the business and investing world. Simon is the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. Many would regard him as one of the stock market's most forward-looking investors focused on identifying disruptive innovation and developing trends. He does this by traveling to industry conferences and by speaking directly with business, scientific, and academic leaders to learn firsthand about cutting-edge technologies. So where do we begin? He's been plugged into the immersive virtual reality, bought his first Bitcoin at $247, and took a pharmacogenomic DNA test to explain how he would react to prescription drugs. So talk about skin in the game. Simon previously worked seven years at The Motley Fool, where he most recently served as the lead advisor of The Motley Fool Explorer. In this role, Simon ran investment newsletter that profiled innovative trends and managed a team of 22 people. So Simon, it's great to have you today, right before we wrap up the year. So without further ado, we would love to hear more about your background and your journey to establish Seven Investing. So please take it away. Hey, thanks very much for the kind introduction, Kelvin. And thank you for the, reminding me about that Bitcoin that went on to go and buy me a uh, self-playing piano and a hot tub. That was probably the best $247 I spent in my life. My background, like you said, was I was actually a chemical engineer by training. Went on to the dark side, as my engineering buddies like to refer to it, and went into a technical sales role to my 20s. This was kind of always traveling around the United States, finding out how our specialty chemicals could be used for new products. Every company we ever talked to wanted to be innovative and a step ahead of their competitors. So it kind of fostered in me that love of innovation and, you know, how do you create something that's going to create higher and higher margins and higher profits for your companies? I went back, I got an MBA in entrepreneurship, and I went to work after that in strategy and venture capital for a large integrated oil company. We were figuring out the renewable energy strategy. How can you go out and build a bunch of solar plants without disrupting your entire business? And then following that, I went and worked for seven years at The Motley Fool, also an investing newsletter, ran a service there for four of those years called Motley Fool Explore. And that kind of all of this has brought me to my favorite part of my professional journey, which was in March of 2020, actually founding the company that we all work for right now, which is Seven Investing, which is where it's myself and six other advisors every month pick our very top and best ideas in the stock market. And we present them as a buffet for all of our subscribers to choose from because we think that investing is personal. We'll go out and we'll do the legwork. We'll find the best ideas on our mind. But at the end of the day, it's truly a personal journey. I'm curious to know, what was your biggest takeaway just working for Motley Fool as their former lead advisor, the Motley Fool Explorer? Yeah, it was a fun role. I, I think that one thing I guess I appreciated out of that was traveled all the time, You know, almost every month, except for Christmas month, except for December's and except for one month there where there was a natural disaster. But other than that, basically every month was at a conference, find it, kind of seeing these innovative trends that were taking place out there, right? There's a lot going on in biotech. There's a lot going on in machine learning right now. There's a lot going on in digital payments. I mean, you would see all of this firsthand and you'd talk with PhDs and postdocs that were thinking on a completely different level. And to me, that is what growth style investing is. It's not just kind of spitballing and throwing darts and saying, okay, I'm going to take a chance on something here. But these great companies don't just appear out of thin air. They're built after long periods of time and really, really innovative thinking. And so even just going out and seeing, you know, which way the wind is blowing, which way markets are changing, why large companies might necessarily be the largest incumbents five or 10 years down the road, really an eye opener. And to me, that is where the fortunes are made in the stock market. You find those generational companies, you get in early and you look for multi-baggers. It's very interesting. So many people would idolize Warren Buffett, especially if they're a value investor. But contrastingly, I've come to understand that you're someone who studied the law of innovation from studying Clayton Christensen, who was an economist who developed the theory of disruptive innovation, book author of The Innovator's Dilemma. What drew you to him? I've got it right there, Kelvin. There's the book on my bookshelf. He, he is my hero. Clay Christensen is brilliant. I've chatted with him on the phone. I never got a chance to have coffee with him in Boston. Unfortunately, he's passed away now. His mind worked with seven layers on anything you'd ask him. You know, It would just be a surface level answer, but then you'd ask, well, why is that? And he'd go seven layers deeper on, on why things work the way that they did. 
kind of one of the best business case study analysts that there ever was. And of course, wonderful academic researcher taught strategy class at Harvard Business School. I mean, so many different things. But so much of it is, is kind of rooted in theory rather than hard numbers. Disruptive innovation is very different from kind of traditional value investing, which says, okay, what's your PE ratios? You know, what's your return on invested capital? What's the margin you're, you're capturing today? It was more of forward-looking uh, theoretical concepts of, you know, why, why would these really, really large companies, in fact, the largest companies in the entire market, the IBMs, the GEs, the Cisco's, the Exxon's, I mean, these were the largest companies for years in the stock market. And today we look back on them like they were dinosaurs. So, you know, why is it that large companies fail? Why is it that small companies displace them? And can you see that taking place in advance rather than after the fact? And of course, as an investor, this is fascinating because if you do get in early and you find those small companies that are showing signs of being disruptive innovators, that's truly where the markets will flip. And even if companies are worth hundreds of billions of dollars or more than that, even we're seeing trillion dollar companies now, that is a lot of profits up for stake for a company that can flip the script on how those companies are, are winning today. So disruptive innovation is all about what favors the new entrance to a market and why are sometimes large companies destined to fail? I guess before you, you come to a thesis on a disruptive technology or trend, it's associated to seven investing's core principles. Just to quickly go through them, number one, it's personal. Two, buy companies, not tickers. Three, don't stress yourself out. Four, time is on your side. Five, valuation matters. Six, find one-of-a-kind companies. Seven, develop a thesis. I think a lot of these principles are self-explanatory. But for me, I think one of the core values that really stood out to me the most is time is on your side. It shines a light on long-term game of investing. So my question is, how do you apply that to you know, exploring innovative trends or technology? Is it about investing early and sort of learning from your own investment mistakes? There's certainly a personal piece to this. Like you said, you're going to make mistakes on, along the way. So make small mistakes at first, and then you know, that's, that's okay. I, I, I tend to think of time is on your side as more of companies are compounding machines. If you can turn a dollar today into a dollar and 10 cents tomorrow, and that outpaces the inflation that we're seeing, that's three to 5% a year, you have more compounding power, you have more purchasing power after one year. If you do that again for, for three or five more years, you're still outpacing inflation, but you're compounding it off of a larger base from before. So really what the stock market is, the reason that we always say stock market's empowering you to invest in your future, that's kind of our mission at Seven Investing, is what if you can, can take that concept of compounding and stack it upon itself for, for long periods of time? And the next one year, it's very difficult to say what the stock market's going to do. It's very difficult to say if you're going to make money or lose money if you're going YOLO and putting all your money on GameStop for the next 30 days. But we do know that companies that can compound returns by kind of having a dedicated practice to how they're going to allocate within their own business, when are they going to put their foot on the accelerator and go after innovation? When are they actually going to double down? on things that are working. Companies, when you buy a stock, you're, you're putting money to work to a management team that is going to compound your capital for you over long periods of time. And so time is on your side is give them a chance to do that. You know, Don't go jump in and out and try to think of stock market like a roulette wheel or a crap stable. Think about it as I'm going to give this company a couple of years to do what they're saying that they're going to do and hold them accountable. Don't just you know let it fly in the wind and, and forget about it. But given a good amount of time and a smart team and a market that's embracing a new solution. This is truly how you create generational wealth. That allows you to retire early. That allows you to buy that dream home you always wanted to, take that vacation, have kids that go to great schools, all the things that you might have in your future dreams. I mean, if you have a, a plan, that's already a step ahead of, of a lot of other people out there. And then if you take a plan and one step further and say, what are the right companies that are going to get me there? What's my appetite for risk versus risk aversion? And what kind of investor do I want to be? I mean, this is kind of your personal journey that you can craft it in your own personal way. Stock market is such a great tool to, to get you there. I think you mentioned something that's very interesting. I think all of the investors are curious to know when they invest in a growth stock or growth company. Investment risk can be defined as what you don't know or don't see. How do you assess risk, especially with growth companies? I think the timing of this, this question is perfect because you know recently we've seen a major drawback with 
growth companies, especially on the technology side. So how do you assess risk? It's interesting because I think most people would actually would consider risk to be more of what I would call volatility, which is that you see your stocks that you buy and they, and they go down within a month or a couple of months. You say, oh my gosh, you know, I bought, name your company, Apple, Facebook, whatever it is you want, Meta, you know, whatever you want to pick. And it's gone down 20% in a couple of months. Oh, I was wrong. Why did I buy this company? Why did I lose 20% on my investment? But in reality, a lot of times the, the actually largest contributor correlated to investment gains or losses is, is the broader market. You know, what is the appetite for the market as a whole? Are, are we worried about what the Fed is going to do? Are we worried about tensions with China? You know, are we worried about things going on out there? And a lot of people just say, I, I don't want to be in stocks right now. I want to take this risk off the table. We're going to go put it in bonds, or I'm going to put it in cash underneath my mattress, or I'm going to go buy Bitcoin or whatever it is, right? Equities are kind of a bigger picture of asset allocation out there. But again, a lot of that is disconnected from the company's specific part of this. If great companies are being sold off, that's actually a really good opportunity for an investor. That's the wrong time to sell if you see your, your great company that's selling off due to other considerations like that. But so risk for me is not the market is volatile and stocks sell off and then they recover after a couple of months. Risk is, is a company doing something wrong that is going to lead to a permanent impairment of your capital. And something wrong could be a lot of things. Could be management's got the wrong strategy, doing the wrong thing. It could be they're doing the right things, but market just has no interest in buying these products. So revenue's stagnated. Could be that competition is just eating their lunch. So their margins are eroding. Or it could be a bunch of other stuff in the proxy that could be overly paying themselves with stock-based compensation. Could be CEO resigns for unexplainable reasons. I mean, those are kind of the bigger picture. You're not going to get your money back because this business is not going to recover kind of factors. That to me is risk. We can't really control what the market's going to feel like this year or next year or the year after that. We can assess a company and figure out if there are really, really big landmines that are sitting right in front of our path. And we should probably, as astute investors, be avoiding companies that have things that could blow up in your face. So to break down risks, one step further, I'd say there's the quality of aspects of a company and the quantitative aspects. What do you think yields the biggest risk and reward for investors? Should investors shine a stronger spotlight on the quantitative aspects of the company? For example, a company's financial well-being, overspending, overcompensating C-level executives, or is it the company culture or the management team that you know investors should shine a heavier spotlight? How do you assess? these qualitative and quantitative factors? Well, so that's a good question. It's probably one I could, I could chat with you a couple hours about. I'll try to condense it as much as I can. I mean, qualitatively, there's a lot of factors. I mean, the managers, when you talk about culture and CEO and how are decisions made and how are strategic plans developed, I mean, all of that is very important. Um, that's something that at least you should be writing down if you're investing in a company is why do you think that this company is going to increase in value in the next three to five years. What's the management team going to do for you? What's the leadership team? I would say though, the biggest factor, you're considering kind of risk versus reward. I almost always look at revenue growth versus industry level growth, right? Company, one of the highest correlations to the performance of stocks is, is revenue growth. Just are they able to maintain a you know, 30% plus revenue clip for a decade? That sounds easy. It's actually really hard. I mean, to get bigger and bigger and then, you know, compound 30% growth on top of 30% growth the year before that. And we're seeing it in cloud computing. We've seen it for a decade in cloud computing. And when you do that, growing at that kind of rate and winning over customers that are willing to pay you more and more over time, that is a recipe for success for kind of becoming a multi-billion, if not hundred billion dollar corporation. We've got some of them out there right now. Snowflake is already showing signs of doing that. Coinbase is already showing signs of doing that. I mean, top dogs in, in industries that are changing, that are winning year after year after year at the top line, those are the ones that kind of become the go-to platforms of the future. So I guess maybe the simplest answer is the right one in this, in this question, is just look for top line growth that's sustainable over long periods of time. One of other seven investing's core principles is find one of a kind companies. How difficult is it to find one of a kind companies? I mean, if it is really difficult, shouldn't investors in general just stick with investing in index funds based on historical returns? If we just look at the S&P 500 index fund as, as an example, why should investors even bother studying individual companies 
when investing in index funds is often seen as a cheat code to long-term wealth. Well, Kelvin, you actually sent me this question in advance. So I did some homework for you before you asked it on this one, but I've got some numbers prepared for you, right? Let's, let's consider three scenarios where the first is you just invest in an index fund, right? You just want to buy the S&P and let it ride for 10 years. And you start with $100,000. How much is your $100,000 worth after 10 years in the S&P if we're basing it on historical returns? If you hold an index fund of the S&P and you're getting the historical return of 10.5% a year for a decade, your $100,000 goes to $271,000 after a decade. You've tripled your money. You've outpaced inflation. You've done pretty well for yourself. But let's consider another scenario where you just get 1% per year higher than the S&P. You know, just instead of 10.5%, you're now just getting 11.5% per year. You've got a couple of good companies that are outperforming. And if you run the numbers on that after a decade, you've actually got about $300,000. So you've got an extra $30,000 after 10 years just by getting 1% per year. And then the third scenario is say that you're actually able to outperform the S&P by 5%. You're able to get an average compound growth rate of 15.5% instead of 10.5%. And that makes your $100,000 after a decade grow to $422,000, right? So you're up $150,000 more than you were in the first scenario of just growing with the market. And that's my answer to your question, is if you find and you're willing to be diligent and hold for long periods of time, there are a lot of even very large companies, even the Apples and the Amazons and the, the Facebooks, have outperformed the broader S&P 500 for several years. And if you had invested in those, you're looking at numbers which are much larger than just those index fund returns. So I don't think there's anything wrong with buying the S&P. I mean, index funds have created a lot of wealth for people over time. But if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra homework, like you mentioned, find those one-of-a-kind companies, run a more concentrated portfolio where you don't have the laggards of the lower 250 companies in the S&P pulling down the outperforming 250 of them. You don't have to follow those same rules of just following the index and running with the herd. And so I think that what we're really trying to do, because seven investing invest in individual companies is say, hey, we're not going to beat ourselves up on a market that's, that's having a down year. It's in the middle of sell-off right now. We're holding all of these with the intention of being five plus years for every one of these investments. And we've got some that are multi-baggers, and we've got some that are down 30 or 40% on the scorecard. When you think about a diversified portfolio with great companies, we've certainly shown that that can outperform broader market indices pretty convincingly over time. We've seen a development of disruptive trends over the past couple of years. I think that provide a hint into finding one-of-a-kind companies. We've seen with electric vehicles, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, virtual reality, metaverse, cryptocurrency, telehealth. What do you think is the next biggest thing? Or is there a particular sector that you feel is still currently undervalued, but ultimately can create a significant impact to mankind in the future? Yeah, next biggest thing is, is actually kind of a a little bit of a yellow flag, if you will. It's, it's something that catches a lot of media attention. Next big thing to me is a yellow flag because it kind of follows the hype cycle. When there's a lot of attention and people are all Googling things like virtual reality and quantum computing and metaverse and all this, that's sometimes a trap that a lot of those companies are really overvalued. The quintessential example for this that I'll give Kelvin was 3D printing. 3D printing, I remember several years ago, this was kind of in all the exhibit floors of South by Southwest, the Consumer Electronics Show. You know, it was kind of the next big thing that everybody was going to have 3D printed coffee cups that you could make right in your kitchen and not have to go to the store anymore. And everything was going to be 3D printed, you know, Christmas toys, whatever it was. But the reality was 3D printing really was only niche market specific. It was great for prototyping. It's great if you want to develop a new car part or something like that, but it just was never going to displace the factories that were so well optimized from being used for decades. And so a lot of the hype you know, that went into those 3D printing companies that came public when the money was there vanished. You know, A lot of investors lost 70, 75% or more on those stocks. And so I, as a disruptive growth style investor, I, I kind of like raising the eyebrow when, when I hear the next big thing or, you know, a lot of headlines are appearing about something. At first, I'm kind of like, okay, is there something to this that's sustainable that I think in five years, this is going to be a rising tide that lifts a whole lot of boats? Or is this a flash in the pan that's really going to fizzle away? But to answer your question of what do I think is sustainable that really is important and really is being disrupted right now, I think it's no doubt the healthcare industry of America. America spends $4 trillion 
dollars a year on healthcare, and it's still paper manila folders behind the desk. You know, the administrators are looking at your kind of your past history and your last office visit and stuff like that. But we can be using that so much more efficiently. I mean, America as a whole, our country here tried to, you know, tried to mandate electronic health records for providers and do all this admin, you know, overhead for, for hospitals that were already losing money. And the doctors are saying, hey, I don't want to do this. I just want to help my patients. But there is an opportunity for progressive providers. HCA Healthcare in Nashville is one of them to, to partner with the companies that want to do a lot of those connecting the dots between data points, right? Google is partnering with HCA to say, hey, okay, if we've got a whole bunch of data on patients and we can also correlate that with other data points like blood pressure or heart rate or wearable devices and things like this. Maybe we can actually start learning a lot about patients and even reaching out to them in the home. Telehealth is another big trend here. In a way that's, that's not jamming so many people into the doctor's office, not stressing out our own doctors with overhead, but there might be a more efficient way to, to root out those correlations between diseases or conditions and data points that we're collecting. And so I think that healthcare, in my opinion, is just a huge opportunity to change how we're doing things right now. Of course, it's hard. Of course, there's regulations. Of course, there's a lot of safety concerns at risk here, even just patient mentality of adopting some of these things. But if you want to go after a market that's massive, that needs to change, healthcare has got to be the one. I have to agree with you on this one, just based on my past experience being educated in the States. I remember there was one time that I got a fever and I had to go see a physician. And because in, in Hong Kong, it's so easy to get medication because the physician, when you go visit them, they'll provide you with the prescription drugs. But I didn't know that in the States, you have to go to a CVS store. You probably have to go drive after seeing a physician. So I had a fever that day and I had to go to a CVS or a Walmart to get my prescription drugs. And it's actually quite risky because I was driving with a fever and no one was there to, to help me. So in order to get better, I have to drive and it just creates a lot of inconvenience. And I think in terms of the healthcare industry, there's definitely room for improvement. And I think if there is a company that is able to fill in the gap, I think that it creates so much opportunity in terms of scaling that service to everyone in, in the country. It's certainly true, Kelvin. I mean, like that story is, is one that a lot of people are going through too, especially the elderly or people that really can't drive around themselves and need a lot of help. Something else we, we chat a lot about on this team is oncology, cancer. You know, late stage cancer is very serious. Obviously, you know, people's lives are at stake. Sometimes people only have a couple of weeks or months to live, but it's also incredibly expensive to treat patients when cancer is detected so late. And so one of the biggest focuses on innovation that's most needed in the healthcare community is how can you detect cancer more proactively in an earlier stage? There's a lot of diagnostic work being done right now using the genome, actually. They're looking for DNA sequencing to detect cancer, a lot of times in the bloodstream, where if you can find things through a routine screen, just like you used to do a physical when you're going to the doctor earlier in life, if you can detect that and then, you know, proactively treat or cure cancers that, that are in very, very early stages, that is a huge win for a lot of different people involved. And of course, that's a huge impact financially for, for doctor's offices, for patients, for insurers. Everybody wants an innovative solution in this field. And it's something that the globe really is spending more than $100 billion a year on just in terms of the drugs themselves, not even counting the medical care associated with it. I think it's interesting to sort of go into the disruptiveness of the product or, or the company with regards to creating that innovative edge and just being ahead of its competitors. How do we evaluate the disruptiveness of a company's product or service and its ability to outcompete its competitors? Sure. So let's kind of keep going with the same example we've got here is why is a company disruptive? A little bit of background, you know, doing my best to make Clay Christensen proud here, but he kind of describes the difference between sustaining innovations and disruptive innovations. A sustaining innovation gets a little bit better every single year and the incumbents keep getting better at producing it, right? The iPhone, we'll have the iPhone 500 in a couple of years from now, right? It's going to keep getting better. It's going to have a better camera. It's going to have a better processor but it's going to be Apple that's going to keep winning that race. It's hard to come out of thin air and disrupt the smartphone. But again, when we're talking about things like healthcare, there is an opportunity to disrupt because you can do things completely differently than the old way of thinking, than the old system that wasn't necessarily working so well. What if you completely flip, flip the script 
and took a completely different approach for it. And so diagnostics for cancer, you know, one example of that is looking for liquid biopsies as opposed to tumor biopsies or tissue biopsies, where rather than actually using a scalpel and trying to cut out a small part of the cancerous tumor so you can characterize it, what if you could detect these fragments of DNA that are floating through a patient's bloodstream and then characterize the tumor that way? You know, biomarkers that tell you this is the type of cancer, this is the type of personalized drug that would either trigger immune response or actually kill the cancer directly. I mean, those are the things that the medical community is trying to think of doing right now. We've gotten genomic sequencing, uh, which characterizes those tumors, down to a cost that's affordable for this to be, actually even be possible to do on a per patient level. And the insurance re reimbursement is there too. They're saying, okay, now that we can afford this, now that the medical facilities know how to do this, why don't we start adopting this and see if it's actually working? And so you've got a lot of stuff in diagnostics in these fields that are going through clinical trials, if not being lag diagnostic tests and other things like this. Pretty innovative field, something I'm pretty excited about. But again, to ask your question, how do you, how do you spot something that's disruptive? It can't just be, oh, we're doing something that's existing better. It's gotta be something completely different that the incumbents are not gonna have an advantage in doing because they don't wanna disrupt themselves. They've got a cash flow and profit stream attached to what they were doing previously. So when it comes to scaling a new product or you know, a disruptive technology, what comes first? This is sort of a chicken or egg question, but does the product have to come first or does the environment infrastructure need to come first? I think a great example would be hydrogen powered vehicles is an interesting example. Technically, you need a hydrogen pumping station in every part of the city in order for people to want to use it, just like what we saw with electric vehicles, just the adoption rate. In order to, for people to use it, you need to have the support for that product. So what comes first? Is it you know, the environment where maybe it's supported by the government, the laws, regulations, or does the product just have to be flawless? Product has, has to serve a purpose first. Like you have to have a product market fit. The market is screaming, I, I hate this. I really don't want to do this anymore. Can you guys get me a better way to, to do this? Right? It's got to fit in need is first and foremost. The infrastructure is never there for a disruptive innovation. If it's already there, it's a sustaining innovation because the incumbents have already taken advantage of it. To your example, yeah, hydrogen was, was a huge opportunity. We actually, something we actually looked at several years ago too, was can you have hydrogen powered cars in the, in the US? Needed infrastructure, billions of dollars to build that out that just wasn't ready. Market wasn't ready for it. And we said, are we really all going to buy hydrogen powered cars for so much more money? The answer was no in America, at least so far. Electric vehicles, interestingly, are in the middle of disrupting the traditional gasoline kind of powered infrastructure that we have. But even that is taking time. There's, a, there's just kind of a history of, of disruptive innovations that have displaced. I mean, even Kodak, the kind of the story is Kodak, they had the original patents for the digital camera, right? They didn't want to disrupt themselves because they were making so much money off of film. Why would you shoot yourself in the foot and disrupt your own company that has cash? Netflix actually did disrupt itself when you know, Reed Hastings said, hey, we're going to do digital streaming rather than the DVDs by mail said, Reed, do you know how much money we're making off of shipping these in the mail to people? Every I mean, this is a profitable business. You're going to go into digital streaming. Of course, it was the right decision. Netflix has got an early lead on this. And Facebook, I mean, Facebook was very disruptive in going after universities in ways that kind of the traditional larger companies that had a, a step ahead of them on this weren't doing. But the question is an interesting one of, you know, how, how do you know if it's going to work? You know, why, why would you want to go out and do something like this, either if you're an existing company or a newcomer? It's a huge risk. You know, it's very difficult to do something like that. It's the kind of the, the question of the innovator's dilemma itself. The, the name, the innovator's dilemma, refers to this by saying if there's no data that's available that's going to guarantee you're going to get a return on your investment, should you take that leap of faith into a disruptive new market? Or are you going to be lighting your capital and your shareholders' capital on fire and get fired because of that, because you made the wrong decision as a manager? And so, I mean, all of these are kind of questions of, of, of how do you approach a new market? I, I think it all starts with there is a need that is not being met, or there is an underrepresented minority of customers that are not being served by the incumbents in, in this space. But it all starts with, you know, why, why, why create the company in the first place? You've got to have a lot of conviction that you're doing the right thing and the market's ready for what you're, you're prepared to offer. I want to draw on market readiness. 
I personally believe it's it's very difficult to time the markets, yet alone to time the market need of a technology or an innovation. But is there a way to sort of time it so that you know you know that the market is ready for this innovation just based on your due diligence or your research? Is it possible? There is a right time. There, there's a right time when you see companies are scaling up and ready to raise some some serious money to do things. Your audience might be familiar with Affirm Holdings, which is an American company here based out of California. Max Levchin for years was just a brilliant computer programmer. He's chief technology officer of PayPal. And he just kind of for years was seeing there was a problem with transparency with credit cards and even just lending in general. The, the consumers were taking on debt they didn't really understand the fees that they were going to have to pay for things. They were hidden. They'd appear in their statements. They'd call to try to figure out what they were. It was just this drag on lending. And they, and they said, why, why is it this way? And so he, he really was trying to, for years, set out to improve financial transparency. And so for years, I, I still remember this going to conferences like we were talking about earlier in this conversation, seeing him speak and, and seeing him even, you know, get on board with a firm, he didn't want to be the CEO of a firm. He just wanted to be one of the backers of this company. But him coming across and kind of saying, hey, there's a better way we can do this. We can be transparent and put all the fees up front, not charge late fees, make sure that people know what they're getting into. And years later, it wasn't until years later, I've even heard buy now, pay later referred to by that term. But now that's kind of all over the place, right? There's, everybody's talking about BNPL at least in the States here, you see acquisitions of Afterpay, you see a firm being you know, a publicly traded company now. It seems like now is the time to go after this trend that's been developing for years. But why is that? It's because there, there still takes a critical mass of the market being ready to embrace this. When you see a first mover like that, just like you saw with Elon Musk with Tesla, again, also from PayPal, and then kind of going on to do his thing for years, Nobody showed up to listen to Elon Musk even talk about the Tesla Roadster, right? It was kind of neat that he was selling them to Leonardo DiCaprio and he had this super expensive electric vehicle. You had to have $100,000 if you wanted to buy, but it wasn't ready for the market. Nobody was talking about buying these in their garage. And look at where we are now. Look at how many Teslas are being shipped, not just in the United States, but into China and to Europe and all over the world. There is a time when you can embrace disruptive innovation. Again, the opportunity isn't when the rest of the market has embraced it and the rest of the headlines are focusing on this. It's when you're one or two steps ahead of that, you've done your homework, you've looked at where the market's going, you're finding the newcomers and you say, okay, I'm ready to start placing some bets. And then you can actually buy in over time. You don't have to back up the truck right away to a, a small company. But if you really want to make money in the stock market, it's about embracing change and getting in early. That's what my team tries to do here at 7 Investing every day. That's so interesting. I think doing homework and doing your due diligence is a major component in terms of understanding the disruptive technology or the company that you're interested in to invest. But many would say that when you look into the financial statements or the products and services, for example, biotech, it's very hard to understand these complex companies or industries when you study their financial statements. So where and how should investors start if they want to invest in these types of companies. Calvin, they should sign up for 7investing. You should join our service, right? This, we're trying to disrupt our own industry in financial services right now. I think it goes up far beyond to answer your question more, more directly without me plugging my company too much. You know, there is a lot of focus today on things like price targets. You know, what is the stock price target to buy at? Is it overvalued or undervalued based on what an institutional investor or a sell-side analyst is saying, this is the right stock price target to buy this at. And so much of that is, is based upon discounted cash flows and kind of these financial projections that are challenging to stick your neck out and, and take risks on those. Just the way our system is built is you don't want to go out and say, okay, I think this company is worth three times as much as what everybody else in my industry is saying it's worth. There is safety in running with the herd because if you're, if you're wrong, everybody else is wrong too. You don't get fired. But if you go out and you stick your neck out and you say, hey, I think this small little $5 billion company today is going to be worth $200 billion 10 years from now, a lot of people are going to laugh you out of the room or really point fingers and say, I told you so if you were wrong. But that's the system we've created. We don't have to follow those rules as individual investors. 
we can go out there and say, hey, I think that there's not enough attention being paid to this company. I don't think that anybody's noticing this small little biotech company that's worth $700 million market cap that's totally off the radar of what everybody else is following out there. I mean, those are the opportunities to get a 10-bagger. Believe it or not, it's very, very hard for Apple or Amazon or even Alphabet to be a 10-bagger from now. I mean, unless you're talking about a $10 trillion company, maybe they're going to get there, but within the next couple of years, it's a lot of expectations are already built into those really, really large companies. But again, we see these quantum shifts in the market. We talked about GE a couple of years ago. GE is not at the top of the throne anymore. Exxon is not at the top of the throne, nor is IBM, nor is Cisco. Again, those were the kings of their time. They got disrupted. Markets changed. They didn't keep up with the changes. I personally think it's much harder to disrupt Apple or to disrupt Alphabet than it was to disrupt GE or Exxon. But again, there are structural disadvantages to the largest companies out there and structural advantages to investing in smaller companies. It's much harder. It's much riskier. But there are signs. You can follow the breadcrumbs to finding really, really big winners if, if you're looking in the right places. And I, and I see a lot of big companies sort of acquiring more companies, uh, smaller cap companies, just to sort of grow their potential future expectations. I think it's hard to keep up, but I think it's, it's setting a tone to you know, their investors in terms of where they want to be in the next 10 to 20 years. Is this a sustainable strategy by growth companies, tech companies to constantly acquire new companies and to disrupt the innovative trend. What are your thoughts on that? It's different for every industry you look at. You know, Aswath Damodaran, kind of one of our finance gurus that teaches at NYU here in the States, kind of looks at industries and, you know, what are the incumbents supposed to do? Do you, do you try to mimic what, what the smaller guys are doing? Do you just go out and acquire them? Do you try to just beat them, you know, at their own game? I mean, what do you, what do, you do if you're worried about being disruptive? If you're a drug maker, the, the right answer is you wait for them to get small enough to actually have something that passes through clinical trials. And then you just say, okay, they've de-risked. They've shown that they can do this. Now we want to go out and make an offer to, to acquire them. Why, why would you do that? Well, because you've already got the infrastructure and sales teams and the commercialized necessities to bring those drugs to the market. You've got the relationships with doctors that are going to prescribe your drugs. It's very difficult for a small drug maker to to make an impact once they've got something commercial. But again, that's different for every industry. It's different in healthcare than it is from semiconductors, than it is from software. I mean, kind of each market keeps it interesting. But yeah, I mean, you've got to kind of pay attention to them. You can't just be dismissive of them. And it's not always written in the numbers. It is a little bit more of, a, of an art than a science defining those sorts of things. But there are large companies that I think more and more are aware of smaller companies that are a huge threat to them. I'd love to get to sort of the behavioral side of investing in innovative companies. I think I've learned the hard way with growth stocks. I, th I think a lot of growth stocks potential is almost unlimited. And when you put, let's say a price target or a rebalancing portfolio formula into your investment portfolio, sometimes you miss out the, the greatest gains, especially with growth companies. So how can investors resonate with the behavioral relationship of doing too much to their investment portfolio and stressing themselves out at the same time? This is correlated to one of seven investing's principles, don't stress yourself out. How do you see this sort of relationship and how can investors in general be better at it when it comes to investing in growth companies? Really a good question. It's probably the one that we should use as a video clip as a teaching moment from this, because I, I think that there's kind of this mentality to, to back the truck up really quick because you want to make a fortune as quickly as possible. You hear about a company, name the company you want to, that's in the news that you heard about on Twitter, that you heard a podcast about or whatever. And the mentality is, oh my gosh, I got to get it on this really quickly before everyone else does. And so there's kind of this mentality of put a ton of money in really, really quickly because you're going to make a fortune really, really quickly. And then you can just retire or pay off your student loans or whatever you want to do. That's not really the ideal way, in my opinion, to, to invest in the stock market. That's exposing yourself to a huge amount of risk rather than kind of what I think is a, is a better plan as a growth style investor, which is place a lot of seeds first, right? Place a lot of crops in your field at the seed level. Go out and find a 
couple of companies that interest you that you think are interesting and put $50 into them, right? Get started. You don't even have to buy a full share anymore. You do fractional shares. There's a lot of brokerages that allow you to, to put any amount of money you want to into buying a portion of a share of a company and any denomination with no commissions. And so if you spread out and say, okay, I'm going to put $500 to work into 10 companies, 50 a piece, but this is at least going to get me following. And write down why you're investing in them, what you think is important that they should be doing well at. And then follow that. And then after six months or a year or so, say, okay, wow, I've got some, some shoots that are coming up from those seeds that I planted. I really like seeing what this company is doing in biotech. I really, really like what this company is doing in the space economy. Oh, wow, this is really interesting what's going on in semiconductors. Why don't I put $50 more into these three companies out of my original 10? And so now you put $100 into capital. They've shown that they're growing. And then another year, you do the same thing. And all of a sudden, out of this original 10, maybe you've got two. I mean, numbers would tell us in growth style investing, you're probably going to have one or two. But the winners from those one or two are going to more than make up for the losses you've had combined over the other eight. But again, most people would think, okay, well, I'm going to pick the one out of these 10 right out of the gate, put all my money into it. Chances are it might be one out of those eight that doesn't perform with the other two. And then you come away saying, oh, man. The stock market thing, I just don't like this. I lost all my money in this. When in reality, a lot of it was based just upon the behavioral process. So to answer your question, behavioral finance is fascinating. Why do we make the decisions that we, that we make? How can we optimize those over time? Because the ultimate goal is to make money and, and to really compound wealth, in my opinion. But a lot of it is just kind of staying, staying the course, having a process that works for you, being disciplined on, on how you're purchasing stocks. Knowing you're not going to bat 100%, you're going to be wrong. Every one of us is wrong out there. But at least kind of looking back and reassessing what went right and what went wrong. And one other important component of this too is don't be afraid to add to your winners. If you see a company that's hitting a 52-week high, a lot of people would say, oh, I remember buy low, sell high. That's the phrase, isn't it? I actually like buy low, buy high, because that's, that's actually showing that the companies that you bought into are, are doing what they said they're going to do. The market is rewarding them for execution. So don't be afraid to buy companies that continue to go higher over time. I mean, Amazon and Netflix, you could have bought a lot of 52-week highs over the last 10 or 20 years and made a lot more money going forward off of those anyway. I think it really draws down to your level of conviction. I think you mentioned in a few podcasts already, it's about being able to upgrade your portfolio, which sort of entails selling a company stock position to invest in an even better company with a high level of conviction. How do you build conviction and evaluate the opportunity cost of selling your position to invest in another company that you feel has an even higher potential? Could you walk us through your thought process? Maybe continuing that same analogy, you've got some plants that didn't work out, right? Like you've got some that you planted and they're doing really, really well. And then you've got some that just, they're not performing as you expected them to. Maybe you didn't water them enough. Maybe they didn't get enough sunlight, whatever it was. But like at some point, the market's going to punish the best performing companies that are out. Again, back to the earlier in the conversation that we just mentioned, sometimes there's broader market sell-offs. People are afraid. People are taking money off the table. For various reasons, great companies sell off with the rest of the market. Sell-offs are very hard for companies that aren't well capitalized or don't have a good plan in place. I mean, they can go bankrupt if they've got too much debt. Uh, if you have one of your visionary leaders that leaves, but you're a small company, that could be really, really hard for a company. It could mean they're not able to raise capital if they're not able to sell equity at, at a low. I mean, there's a zillion reasons that lower quality companies that are not performing well, it's challenging for them in market sell-offs or in bear markets. And so I kind of think of that as an opportunity to say, okay, if everything's selling off, maybe there's a potential that these come back and they skyrocket to become 10 baggers worth 10x their original investment. But I think that more likely, I would rather have a higher quality company that's kind of got more structural advantages against its competitors. I always take a market sell-off as an opportunity to find a quality. I've done it personally these last couple of months. Market's selling off. Everybody's losing money these last couple of months. I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of investors are certainly losing money. But if you are diligent and you have a process and you stick with your process, and you don't just let the wind blow you around like the market tends to do sometimes. This is a huge opportunity when the market is selling off to buy your favorite companies at better prices. And so when I talk about upgrading your portfolio, I think of that as the opportunities to buy into the Starbuckses 
of the world, to buy into the American towers of the world, to buy into these really great companies. Like, yeah, maybe retail's down. Maybe it's harder to raise money right now, but are they going to still be around in five, 10 years? Yeah, I think so. And so if you can buy them cheap and get an even better return than you would have when there was a cheery market consensus, market sell-offs are a great time to do that. A lot of retail investors or investors in general are, are looking into fundamentals, but you know, I, I also think that it's almost logical for them to think that way because ultimately a business needs to generate cash flows. And if let's say because of you know economic cycles or headwinds in the coming few months that this company is not going to perform as well as other companies or industries, they're going to sell off their stocks. So it's it's kind of interesting to get that behavioral mindset of of why retail investors would want to sell their growth stocks and switch to value plays. But I think in the long term, would you say that's detrimental to you know creating that long term wealth in the future? Yeah, I mean, we try to outsmart ourselves sometimes on some of this stuff. I also think that there's just way too much focus on quarterly earnings these days. You're required by the SEC to provide quarterly results uh, for investors of your publicly traded company. But just we've gotten to this point that we just overly obsess over whether or not they hit or missed the expectations from Wall Street, right? If you see a company that beats earnings per share by one penny, oh, the stock shoots up. All the algorithms have buy, buy, buy. And, you know, the stock just responds accordingly. But if you miss those quarterly earnings by two cents a share, one cent a share, your stock sells off. And so short term minded managers are going to try to manipulate that and, and manage those expectations with the street. So they're always one or two pennies above expectations. And it just, it's becoming comical to me. I mean, you can pull orders in to, to hit that. You can cut your costs. You can stop investing in your R&D department if you wanted to manage your short-term expectations. That's not how you're going to create long-term wealth. I mean, like it's almost comical that a biotech company still has to report earnings per share if it doesn't have any commercialized drugs yet, right? You're not looking at the earnings number, you're looking at the progress that they're going through clinical trials. You know, what are the response that patients are showing to this drug? What are their plans if they actually get it to the next phase? Are they going to have a royalty payment from a larger partner? Let's go with another example. Cloud computing companies, it's not about earnings per share because they're investing super heavy in the infrastructure and the right people and the talent on board. What's much more interesting is dollar-based retention of once you get a customer, are they spending more and more with you over time? Are you leveraging that sales and marketing and that research and development that you put up front into building long-term relationships that are becoming embedded with enterprise customers? I mean, things like this are the metrics that long-term growth style investors should be looking at. It's certainly something that in, in our reports that we do for 7investing, we identify three metrics that are not necessarily just revenue, earnings, or cash flow growth. I mean, we've kind of overly obsessed with financial statements, especially institutions in the United States. I'm starting to, thankfully, notice that there are more funds that are kind of looking at off-earnings statement metrics and, and pointing those out to individual investors for education of those kinds of things. So if you're a growth-style investor, you really want to be in this for five or 10 years. If you're looking at small-cap companies, earnings is, is the least important metric or managing the earnings that, that, is, that is expected from Wall Street. It's going to be all over the place. It's a volatile game out there. I know we're almost out of time, but I guess I have two more follow-up questions. So now I think it's the humbling part of my episodes. If the question that I have for you is, you often tell your audience that you enjoy attending business conferences to stay up to date to the financial markets and some of the biggest trends. So what are some of the biggest takeaways from attending these conferences? Well, I love them, Calvin, because I, I am proud to be the dumbest one in the room a lot of the times. I actually embrace being humble and realizing that somebody on the stage with a PhD knows a heck of a lot more about what they're talking about than I ever will. But I am also passionate about being the person that will just take notes the entire time during the conference. I'm the guy on the laptop that just, you know, hammering on the keys. I approach a lot of the speakers afterwards. I get them on our podcast or I chat with them at the conference and just say, hey, what are you really excited about? Why are you doing this research? What do you see that's the problems that are out there? And then kind of on the plane ride home, I haven't been on a plane ride for a conference in a while because we're kind of in a COVID era right now. But in the aftermath of conferences, it's, it's kind of you just spend a day or two going through your notes and connecting the dots and say, okay, wow, I was at this one a couple of months ago where they said this, there's something else that came up again. What if this was the way that was the future? 
yeah, that certainly led me to, to following containers and the way that DevOps is kind of replacing the traditional way of developing software. Everyone was really excited about containers because you didn't have to have kind of the centralized authority of, of how you were actually going to release new, new product launches. You could do it incrementally, kind of small increments. Microservices is what we call this. Netflix was big on embracing this. But again, I saw that at the Cloud Expo years ago. I saw people speaking about that on stage. I said, oh, wow, that's really neat. The techies are on board for this. And then that kind of led me in a, in a direction of cybersecurity of how do you protect these remote software developers that are working all over the world together on projects? How do you get them on the same page, first of all, and then how do you protect them from, from hackers and other things? But I, I think to answer your question, of, uh, what, what about the conferences? What did I learn about the conferences? I think it's, it's really good to stay humble and not assume that you know everything about the stock market. Uh, this is a long-term journey. You're going to learn more tomorrow than you knew today. And then the day after that, you're going to learn more too. The real winners in this, if you really want to be a long-term investor that's going to win this game, challenge yourself to get a little smarter every single day. Listen to Kelvin's podcast multiple times in the future and the guests that he has, because it's, it's an education that like is the most personalized education you get. You get to be the one directing your retirement and your future. So embrace that. Don't be afraid of it. Don't let the bar be too high for you to be intimidated about this. Go jump in and get started today and start your financial future. Simon, thank you so much for the marketing plug. I really appreciate it. My audience, they would love to connect with you and learn more about 7investing. How can they find more information about you and 7investing? Well, we've got a fantastic team, Kelvin. Thank you for the opportunity to have me on your podcast, first of all, and even give me a chance to chat a little bit about 7investing. Uh, we are seveninvesting.com. That's our website. Our business is providing seven stock recommendations every single month. And then we follow up with them with kind of peek behind the scenes of our team's discussion about them. We also give recurring company updates on every single one of them because we think it's a long-term journey. Like I mentioned, we've got PhDs on the team from biotechnology to computer science, to material science, to digital payments, to artificial intelligence. I've really been blessed to be joined by, by so many people that I really respect on this team that are really ahead of the markets. And so that's our goal. You know, we're providing it right now. We've got a, a holiday promotion that we've got just a couple of days left on here. If you use holiday as the promo code at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe, you save $100 for infinity for as long as you stay an active subscriber. It's not just a one-time deal. Uh, we really want people to get in to see our stock recommendations for the long term. And then info at seveninvesting.com. If you'd like to send us an email, or at 7investing on Twitter are probably the best ways to reach out to, to me or anyone else on it. Thank you so much for your time, Simon. I wish you a happy new year and happy holidays. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the speakers in this podcast. Any content provided by guest speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to represent or malign any institutions, religion, or group. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not your financial advisors. If you like this podcast or want to find more about us, please subscribe to our Instagram page at mmarketgoliath and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We look forward to have you join our next episode. Thank you for listening.